Hello. My name is Sharon. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Chelsea, and the New Testament reading is found in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation, because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him. Whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Hey, my name is Colleen. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1, 1 through 5, and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The Word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We know the Spirit of God was given to help us to behold Jesus and to know the Father. So, Spirit of God, would you help us to behold the glory of Jesus this morning? Not only to try to comprehend with our minds, but to worship him with our hearts and with our whole lives. Help us to behold this morning the living Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, we started a series last week called We Believe In, and it's a series on the Nicene Creed. And part of the reason for this, we said this last week, part of the reason for this series is because sometimes it can be difficult to know what is it that Christians believe. Depending on who you talk to, you might get a slightly different answer. You might get a picture that says, well, you got to believe in all of these things, and by the way, this is what the gifts of the Spirit look like, or this is what... And, and th- there's these things that are sometimes put in the bag, and then we hand the bag to another person and say, yeah, you got to have all of this. This is what it means. Or maybe you just sort of pick up interpretations of cultural Christianity, uh, particularly here in Colorado Springs, and so you think, oh, I think what's in the bag, I think what I need to accept is that somehow I got to, you know, live in Briargate and vote Republican. And this is sort of, this is what it means to be a Christian. And so we need to kind of step back a little bit and say, okay, what is it? What does it mean? What do Christians believe? What have 
Christians believed. Last week we said that the creed, the Nicene Creed, functions uh, in three, at least three ways. One, it's an instrument of unity. It's the only Christian confession that is confessed by every stream of the body of Christ, from the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, Protestants, which includes Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, all of that. And it even includes us non-denominational folks. It's, it's New Life's official, quote-unquote, statement of faith. Because we're saying, you know what, we're not creating our own statement of faith. We're affirming the faith of the church, capital C. So it's an instrument of unity. It reminds us of what we all focus on together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's also an outline of theology. It provides for us almost in structure form, in skeletal form, the structure of Christian faith. It walks us through what we believe about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You remember in the book of Acts, they use the phrase, they say the church continued in the apostles' teaching. You remember that? Well, how does that continue beyond the book of Acts? Well, the church fathers began to pass this on. But here's the thing. They discovered that some other Christians began to come up with their own conclusions from reading the letters of the New Testament. And so these councils were formed to say, no, 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 no. This is what represents the teaching of the apostles that was passed down. And so a rule of faith began to develop, an outline, a pattern of faith. Last week, we used the illustration of tracing letters, children learning to write for the first time, and they trace letters. That's what the creed is like. It's a pattern of faith. It helps us trace the vocabulary of our faith and say, yes, this is, this is how we think. This is how we believe. But thirdly, it's also a guide in uncertainty. If you were here last week, you saw me hang on to a rope that spanned the, the width of this auditorium and talking about that rope between the house and the barn and the old Midwest farms where in a snowstorm you needed something to help guide you home. And the creed provides us with that link to remember where it all began and connect us to the story. Last week, we also made mention that the creed really was formalized in in two councils. The first happened in 325 A.D. If you're writing stuff like this down, you want to save it for your next office party trivia, there you go. Uh, It it, it met in, in the city of Nicaea. It was called by the Emperor Constantine. And so all the bishops of the church came to affirm the core Christian teaching that had been passed down throughout the first few centuries. Later in 381, they met in the city called Constantinople under Emperor Theodosius, and they formalized it again and just added a couple lines in the stanza about the Holy Spirit. And between those two councils, that forms the creed as we have it today, written in Greek. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, Glenn, why do we need this? We've got the Bible the Bible is all that we need. I'm a Bible only, especially if it's King James. You know, or maybe if you're not that, you're saying, but, but why? Why do we need all this stuff? Listen, here's the thing. They had the scriptures too. But early on, you began to have one or two teachers that became influential that were claiming to have a literal, correct reading of scripture, but were coming up with theories that were in contradiction with the apostles' teaching. And so the creed was a way of saying, it's great that you have the scriptures but you can actually misread the scriptures. (gasps) Yeah, you can. And so the creed became sort of like, if you ever go bowling with kids, or maybe you do this yourself just for fun, you put up the bumper lanes, you know, so you can't get gutter balls. You you always score higher. It's amazing. 
The creed is like bumper lanes. It says, look, read the scriptures, wrestle with it. But here's where you, the boundary markers are. You can't get in the gutter by saying this, this thing about Jesus. And you can't get in the gutter by saying this thing about the Father. Stay in line. This is why the same council that formalizes the creed is also the same council that formalizes the canon, i.e. the books of scripture. They are the same church fathers. And they do it on the same basis. In fact, the high, high majority of phrases in the creed actually come from the early letters of the apostles, i.e. the New Testament. And we're going to see some of that this morning. We also, last week, and I don't want to, I just want to make this note, I won't recap every week. I'm going to trust that if you miss a week, because of the way this series sort of builds one part on the other, uh, it would be really important for you to, to, to keep up with the notes and the podcast. I post um, my entire sermon notes on the newlifedowntownblog.com, uh, along with links to the audio and the podcast. If any of that is helpful to you, you can take advantage of it and kind of keep up with us. Last week when we began, we looked at the opening words, we believe in, and we talked about how important it is that faith is communal. That there are going to be times for many of us where doubt rages within us. I don't know if I can believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection. It just all seems too much. And what I always try to say to people who are going through those seasons and going through those stretches is to say, it's, it's, it's all right. It's okay. But would you be willing to keep showing up on Sundays? Because there's something powerful that happens when you come with the church and you keep saying with the church, we believe, even though the little eye of faith is is weak at the moment. You're being carried by the great faith of the church in those seasons. And then we talked about the word believe, how our faith is rational and we can demonstrate a certain amount of reasonableness, if you will, to our faith. And yet, believing is not the same as certainty, is it? That when we say the words, we believe, we're not saying, we know. We're not saying, we can prove. We're not saying, we're certain. We're saying, we believe. It's an act of submission and surrender and belief. That's why the third word there is in. We believe in. It's such a posture of worship rather than a posture of an analysis. It's not saying, I believe that. I'm saying, I believe in. My whole life is invested in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's how we set it up and we talked about God the Father. Today, we're going to begin to turn our attention now toward Jesus. Now, it's not surprising that the longest section of the creed is about Jesus. Because this was the place where people could go off. This was the place where they could make mistakes. And so there's really two stanzas. And maybe the, the, the way to think of it is that one stanza deals with how Je- who Jesus is in relation to God the Father. And then next week, it's who Jesus is in relation to humanity. But we're actually going to spread this out over three weeks. And so it might help you to think of it as Jesus and his work in creation today Next week, Jesus and his work in salvation. And then two weeks from then, on September 13th, we'll do Jesus and his work in the future restoration of all things, his return. So we're going to take three weeks and walk through this section about Jesus. Okay, if you've got your notes uh, or a notepad ready or whatever, you're going to want to write a couple of these things down, I think. So here's the stanza for this morning. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. Part of the reason for all of these phrases just over and over again, underscoring the same kind of point, just hitting it over and over again, Jesus is one with God. The reason for this is that there was this teacher in the, 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 the uh, third century, early third century, whose name was Arius, A-R-I-U-S. And Arius was convinced, he was one of the bishops in the church, but he was convinced that Jesus was actually a creature, a created being who was given a special portion of divine power. He was anointed, but in a way that was more anointing than anyone else prior to him. Yes, he's the anointed one, but he's the super anointed one, but that doesn't make him God. And so Arius began to gain a bit of a following, and so part of the council of Nicaea's job was to say, Arius, you're making this up. You're coming up with something that is an innovation of thought. See, sometimes, and I don't know if you've um, come across this, but sometimes you hear maybe from professors at school or, or, or different places, you say, oh, you know, they didn't believe that Jesus was God early on. It's much later in the 300s that they then start to claim that he was God. Have you heard this? And they say, well, this is kind of a later invention. It was a later innovation, this whole divinity of Christ thing. Actually, when you look at the council and the letters that were written in the 150 years or so leading up to that, all they were doing at the council was reaffirming what had been passed down throughout the centuries. And they were basically saying, if there's anyone who's teaching something new, it's not us about the divinity of Christ. It's Arius who's claiming that Jesus was a created being. Now, on what basis were they making this statement? I mean, certainly from other church fathers before them, Tertullian and others, but it's also through these letters that we have, the letters in the New Testament. Sometimes people call them the epistles. It just means the letters that the, the apostles wrote. The, the epistles in the New Testament were written about 25 years after the resurrection. So they're writing this with, as, the, as the first generation of eyewitnesses to the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Listen to some of the things they say. Ephesians 2. Paul writes, or the writer of Ephesians says, In him all things were created. Jesus isn't a created being. In him all things were created. Colossians 2, Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. Philippians 2 says he was in very essence the form of God. And he didn't take it as a thing to be grasped. It's clear that the, 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 the letters of the apostles from early on, 25 years after the resurrection, are saying, no, this was no ordinary person. This was God. This is God. Sometimes people say, well, okay, sure. But Paul made it up. Paul made up the whole divinity of Jesus thing. I, I mean, did the gospel writers actually believe it? The gospels are written about 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so sometimes the question comes up, well, why did, why did it take him so long to write these stories down? One of the reasons could very well be because they expected his return within their lifetime. And so they're writing letters to encourage fellow believers, but they didn't think they needed to write down the story, the account of his life. Because they're like, well, you were there, you've heard. That's why you believe. And 
over time they start to realize, you know what, it may not happen in our lifetime. We better start putting things down. And so they start writing stories. One of the earliest gospels by, by sort of our best scholarly guess is the gospel of Mark. And Mark's so great. We might do a series on Mark's gospel later this year, but Mark's gospel is so great because he kind of walks you through their astonishment. Over and over again in Mark, he says, and they were astonished, and they were amazed. And there's not a tremendous amount of, of, of um, definitive statements. It's more of bewilderment <laughs> from his followers and from his opponents. Both groups of people are sort of like, what, huh, what, who's that, who is this guy? And Mark kind of bookends his gospel with a clue. He uses this phrase, son of God. But he's got a lot of astonishment going on. Matthew, Matthew does it by giving Jewish symbolism a fresh take. And he starts to show how Jesus is doing things that Moses did, but in a way that is greater than Moses. Matthew shows Jesus um, doing things with the temple that all of a sudden seems like he's in more power, uh, more authority over the temple and over the Sabbath, as if to say one greater than the temple was here. Matthew has his own way of showing that Luke and John, they, they, they kind of front load it a little bit. Luke does this thing where at the end of his gospel, he talks about the disciples and the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And after the resurrection, it says their eyes were opened and then they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think that's Luke's kind of literary way of saying, that was us. We went through all these years with him. We were around. We heard this stuff. And he's writing accounts of others, Peter and Paul, uh, not Paul, Peter and others. And he, and he said, we were all listening to, the, to these stories, witnessing these scenes, but we didn't get it until the resurrection. And then the resurrection happened and we're like, wait a minute. Let's go back to that one scene, rewind. You know, it's kind of like the first time you watch The Sixth Sense, right? And you're like, he was dead the whole time. Sorry, did I just ruin that for you? <laughs> and you go, you got to go back and rewatch it. That's what, that's kind of what Luke is doing. He's like, well, let's go back and rewind. What was happening? That's so crazy. John decides, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the M. Night Shyamalan approach. I'm just going to give it to you from the, from the outset. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This Jesus I'm about to tell you about, he is in very essence God. So the gospel writers claim it. Now listen, I understand that this doesn't mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean that. Faith is a strange and mysterious and fragile thing and how that develops in our hearts. I'm only saying to you, that we can't say that the early apostles and church fathers in the first few centuries, we can't say that they didn't believe it because they did. And so this creed is what they've formalized as a way of saying, let's make sure this right belief about God gets passed on. Let's make sure Arius and Marcion and all of this other stuff doesn't take over as the church spreads. So let's take this phrase by phrase. One Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but by the time it got translated in Jesus' day, they were all reading it in Greek because Greek culture had spread all over the world, that known area of the world uh, at that time. And so they were reading it in Greek, and the Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Every time in the Old Testament when you see the Hebrew letters Yahweh, the, the sovereign covenantal Lord, who rescues his people and defeats his enemies. Every time Yahweh appears in the Hebrew text, 
In the Septuagint, in the Greek text, it's translated as Kyrios, which means Lord. And so when these church fathers sit down and they say, we believe in one Kyrios, one Lord, they're intentionally saying, yeah, that one, the same Lord, the one who is the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, the creator and covenant God, that Lord is actually named Jesus. And of course, Jesus, in the Hebrew form, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. And then Messiah, or Christ, one Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name, you know, as if his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ and meet their little boy Jesus, you know, Christ. Christ was a title. It's the Greek title for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. And so right away, the the, the church fathers are saying in this statement, one Lord, the sovereign Yahweh, who is himself the Lord who saves, who is himself the anointed one. This is not just the anointed one who's a very cool, super anointed human. He's also the sovereign Lord. And he's not just the sovereign Lord. He's the Lord who came to save in the person of Jesus. All of, right away in this phrase, we've got all of it packed together. And then it goes on. The only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Literally in the Greek, it's the only begotten Son of God. Now whose language are they pulling from there? They're pulling from St. John. John, John 1, we heard it this morning. We beheld His glory, the, on, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Or that other verse in John that you may have heard of. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. What they're trying to say is Christ came from God and returned to God in a way that no other human has or could or will. Now it's important to get something clear here. The begetting. Begetting, when we think of begetting, is like, you know, sort of parents and children. But for the writers of the creed, they're, they're not thinking in that sense of a begetting. They're, in fact, the, they use a... Um, a preposition that means out of. The Son comes out of the Father. There's this generate, they're of one essence, and they'll begin to make that clear in a moment. The next phrase, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. These are all um, metaphoric words from Scripture. The psalmists talk about God being the light. John, of course, talks about the light. Hebrews 1 says the sun is the light of God's glory and the imprint of God's being. When they say God from God, light from light, true God from true God, what they're saying is whatever you think of when you think of God, whatever you're trying to convey when you say the word God, Jesus is not less than that. Jesus is not less than that. This isn't two gods, this isn't a second god, this isn't a junior god. And then, as if it weren't clear, they say it again, begotten, not made. Kind of a spiritual begetting. One of the theologians in the Council of Nicaea, you know, all analogies are imperfect. He tries to use the analogy of thought and word. He says, you know how a word generates from a thought, but they're so connected? That's like the Father and the Son. The Son is the word that generates, okay. Kind of, I get it. (laughs) One of the reasons this matters for you and me is we could say, Jesus is what God has to say. What does God have to say about her? Jesus is what God has to say. 
in his teaching, in his life, in his suffering, in his death. But then they say this phrase, not made, begotten, not made. Think about what we've heard so far. We've heard, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And now when they get to Jesus, they they just want you to know, by the way, when you're thinking about things the Father has made, don't put the Son in that category. He's not made. He was begotten. Something, he's up. And then to keep expounding on it, they say the phrase, of one being with the Father. In Greek, it's the word homoousios, as opposed to that other phrase you guys all know, homoousios, no. which means like, similar in being. Homoousios is, no, 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 one in being. It's the same being, the same essence. In the early 200s, a church father named Tertullian said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all of the same substance. Can't wrap our heads around this, but you know what it means. It means if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. It means if you know Jesus, you know God. If Jesus is what God has to say, then by knowing Jesus, you now know what God is like. And then their final phrase in this stanza, through Him all things were made. This is their way of saying, look, the Father is the maker of all things. Jesus doesn't fit in the category of things made. He's not made. But not only is He not made, through Him all things were made. Now you're seeing an, a, a, an affirmation in the positive sense. We've heard the negation, the negation to say, he's not made. Now we're saying the affirmation, actually through him, all things were made. All of it. Where do they get that from? They get it from John 1. They get it from Colossians 1. They get it from Hebrews 1. And they're meant to make us think of Genesis 1. All that is here. Jesus. It was made through Jesus. Now, we're going to stop because right now your heads are spinning and you're like, I don't, this doesn't make any sense. And it's hard. How how could we possibly comprehend this? You know, there's a difference between a problem that must be solved and a tension that must be embraced. If you approach the humanity and divinity of Christ as a logical problem that must be resolved, you'll get into error. This is what happened to Arius. Arius wanted to face, it doesn't make sense. He's either got to be divine or he's got to be human. He's either got to be a creature or the creator. How can he be both? And so Arius says, look, it's just got to be this. He viewed the question of who Jesus was as a problem to be solved instead of a tension to be embraced. When you think about tensions, good tensions, I can't help but think about instruments. Because instruments, stringed instruments in particular, rely on there being proper tension. This is a beautiful guitar, this is Abby's guitar. This is a G chord, this is C, this is D, back down to C, we can sing it now. Lord, I lift your name. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to have summer camp right now. In, yeah. Woo. In order to make music on a guitar, you have to embrace the tension of the string. You don't get music if you don't have tension. 
If you try to say, oh, that's a problem, let's just put the string just on one part here and then let the other part just hang, you won't have sound. Well, let's just put it on this side over here. No, no. On the other hand, if you ratchet up the tension too much, you pop the string, right? You've got to find just the right tension. And there it is. There's a the- Scottish theologian named Torrance, a brilliant Trinitarian theologian. He says, true theology is a theology that sings. See, when you approach Jesus and his divinity and his humanity, you say, I've got to solve this problem. Not only will you get frustrated and likely end up in error, you're also missing the chance to sing. You're missing the chance to worship. I think it's not an accident that the richest passages about the divinity of Christ in the New Testament are found in hymns. Philippians 2 is a hymn. Colossians 1 is a hymn. Why? Because Paul and these early apostles, they can't talk about the mystery of who Jesus is, God, and yet human. They can't talk about it without saying, oh, I want to sing. I want to worship. Jesus, we love you. Like we sang this morning. The tension, the gift of the tension is that it can lead you to sing. Now, what's our tension today? You say, well, Glenn, Arius isn't around today. Nobody says, I'm an Arian, you know. No, it's true. But I think you still see this wrestling between the human Jesus and the Son of God, fully God Jesus. Maybe illustrated best with these two phrases. It's the tension between what Jesus taught versus what Jesus claimed. So you have people who say, oh, I love Jesus. So great. Love Jesus. Love that guy. One of my all-time favorite philosophers. I mean, I put him right up there with Plato and Aristotle. Jesus. Woo! That guy understood life. Cool. Most people don't really have a problem with what Jesus taught, at least what they remember of it. But the rub comes when you say, what about what Jesus claimed? You know, when he says, I am the bread of life. All these I am statements in John's gospel I am the way, the truth. Oh, well, no one comes to the Father except by me. I like what he taught. Great opinion on poverty. Love that guy, Jesus. Real progressive. (laughs) I'll leave that one alone. Or we say, I love what Jesus claimed. Jesus, the Son of God, he's the only way to heaven. We're so convinced. I'm so... Oh, but that thing when he said, like, you know, caring for the poor and the immigrant, I don't, I don't, that's not really that important, right? As long as I got the heaven parts right, right? Like what Jesus claimed, that's the crux of the gospel, not what he taught about, about, you know, visiting the sick and the infirmed, the ones in prison and the immigrant, like that. Surely Jesus didn't mean for me to be a good American. Oh, no. Now we've got Trouble. Because you're making me choose between what Jesus claimed and what Jesus taught. No, no, no. Now listen, what if you put the two together? What if the same Jesus who taught us to turn the other cheek and love our enemies and bless those who persecute, what if the same Jesus who taught those things was also the Jesus who claimed to be the only Son of God? Now all of a sudden his teachings have a different kind of weight. Now we're saying, okay, wait, I can't just take what I like and dismiss what I don't. His teachings mean more than Plato's or Aristotle's or Gandhi's or the Buddha's. Jesus' teachings, I, 
if I hold them together with what he claimed, all of a sudden, it means more. But it also means something in the other direction. What if the Jesus who claims to be God is the Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'll give you rest. What if the Jesus who is the image of God, the full expression, the same essence, what if this Jesus is the one who bends down to wash our feet and make himself low? Now all of a sudden you're like, this, I'm seeing the beauty of this. That there's no need to separate what he taught versus what he claimed. It is the one and the same Jesus. C.S. Lewis, writing in his day in the 1950s, said, you know, basically, if you kind of take the gospel writers to be honest men, if you sort of assume that they're documenting, you know, excerpts and quotes accurately, then you're really only left with three options about this Jesus. Either this guy is, the, is just the most outrageous liar that's ever lived, because he had some good things to say, but he also made some outrageous claims. Either he's the worst, terrible liar ever, or he's just a madman. He's a lunatic. Like, who goes around saying that he has the power to forgive sins? And I, well, who does that? Or he actually is Lord. And so Lewis is like, we, we can't do any of this condescending business of like, what a great teacher. Because the claims of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus belong together. And we're forced to wrestle with both. But I'm telling you, when you hold it together, somehow in the, in the right tension that the creed invites us to, you know what you get? You get the beauty of the glory of the only Son of God. Why does His divinity matter? See, if the gospel was about moral achievement or moral behavior, the new morality, then Jesus is just kind of a new moral teacher. But the gospel is not about a new morality. It's not about a good teacher who says, I've got a new way of treating one another. It's going to be so radical. You're going to forgive. It's so powerful. The power of forgiveness. That's the power that Jesus released into the world as a teacher. If the gospel was about a new morality, Jesus would just be a great teacher. But it's not about a new morality. Neither is the gospel about a great achievement. So Jesus is not simply a great hero. Think of the old Greek myths where you have all of the human race suffering and struggling down below and all of a sudden one champion rises up above them all, Hercules! Is Jesus some sort of Hercules who conquers the grave or something like that and he's this mythic figure who rises from the struggle of humanity? Look, if that's true, then good for him, but you're still stuck. Gee, if the gospel is some sort of new, a great achievement, so look at Jesus' example. Look how he conquered it. Okay, okay, I'll try harder too. Okay, I'll do better. Okay. But the gospel is neither a new morality nor is it a great achievement. The gospel is about sharing in the life of God and only God can give you a share of God's life. Only God can give you a share of God's life. See, what we really are after are not things that God gives. Eternal life is not something in God's goodie bag. Oh, eternal life, there you go. Joy, there you go. Peace, forever, is yours. No, no. 
This is who God is. And so if you want life that never ends, if you want peace that passes all understanding, if you want joy that can never be shaken, if you want hope that will never be lost, if you want love that is deeper than you've ever known, you don't come to God as things that he sort of throws out. You come and say, God, these things are the essence of who you are. How can I share in your life? And Jesus says, because I am the only begotten God from God, light from light. I am the very life of God. If you have me, you have God. Eternal life is not something God gives. It's what he is. So the divinity of Jesus matters because the gospel is not morality or achievement. It's a sharing in the very life of God. Friends, this matters for us this morning. Not so that we can get into fights about it, although there was a really remarkable story. I don't know if it's exactly true, but it's a great story that's been passed on about the Council of Nicaea. Arius was there making his claims about Jesus being a creature. And one of the bishops that was there was St. Nicholas, you know, from whom we get the legend of old St. Nick, Santa Claus, right? And at one point he gets so upset that Arius keeps saying that Jesus was a, a, a human and Nick can't take it anymore. And so St. Nicholas comes over and just punches Arius in the face. It's amazing. It's, I, again, I, it's, I, I don't know if it's fully true, but it's a great story. It's like Santa Claus punched the guy. I love it. So we could take the creed as ammunition in a culture war. We could take the creed as like, okay, let me prove to you. Or we could let the creed be a springboard for the worship of the God of whom the creed speaks. See, what, our, what we're about this morning is beholding Jesus. Behold Jesus who gives us a share of the life of God. Behold Jesus who allows us to enter in the fellowship with God so that his life becomes our life and his joy becomes our joy and his peace becomes our peace and all of these things and more are ours because Jesus is God from God, light from light. Amen?